and welcome to Women Positively Aging, the podcast for women in midlife and older who want to live well for longer. I'm your host, Barbara Bray, and in today's episode on gut health and aging, we'll be talking about what healthy aging really means when we're all so different as individuals. The aging process is influenced by so many factors, our physical environment, social environment, genetics, and many more. As we age, there can be changes to the way we absorb nutrients from food, our appetite can become disrupted, and our immune function altered. What about our gut microbiome? How does it change over time? What influences those changes, and can we do something about it? Our guest today is Rebecca Hurst, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for EY UK, and she'll talk about her experience of changing her diet in her 30s, the impact it had on her health, and her new passion for personalised nutrition and gut health. Our invited researcher is Emily Leeming, Registered Dietitian and Head of Programmes at Zoe, a health science company that uses novel digital technologies to tackle health issues. Zoe runs the world's largest in-depth nutritional research program. A warm welcome to both of you, Emily and Rebecca. It's great to have you on the show today. Hello, good to be here. (laughs) Thanks for having us. It's going to be a great session, but I think we best start off by talking about the microbiome and what it actually is. Emily. Yes, so the microbiome is a collection of different uh, microbes that live in your lower intestine. So usually when we talk about your microbiome, we specifically tend to refer to bacteria, but there's also viruses, fungi uh, and yeast. And actually we have about 38 trillion microbial cells that live in our lower intestine. Um, but actually probably about uh, within somebody's gut, about 200 to 1,000 bacterial species. And these all exert different health effects around the body because they digest the food that we eat and then produce metabolites that then transfer into our bloodstream and go around the body and have different impacts. Thanks for that comprehensive explanation. So we know our starting point. And what I'm really interested to know is, is there a connection between gut health and ageing? So how does our microbiome, how does it change throughout our lifetime? Yeah, so our our microbiome kind of is fascinating. It kind of shifts and develops as we grow in earlier life. And I'm happy to talk about that later if that's something that's interesting. As we get older and in adulthood, we have this kind of what we call our kind of adult microbial signature, which tends to stay Um, pretty resilient and it does fluctuate uh, hour by hour, day by day, but actually we have these kind of core, what we call keystone taxa, which tend to kind of stay, if you zoom out and you look at kind of a year focus, to stay like fairly resilient. Um, And that's partly to kind of prevent against perturbation, so any kind of, um, you know, challenges, whether it's kind of an infection, for example, that we're able to bounce back. And then in later life, we find that actually, along with other physiological changes, a lot of that kind of diversity. So we talk about lots of the different types of microbes and lots of different types of bacteria that we have in our gut. So in theory, the more different types of bacteria we have, the more they're able to produce like different functions, different metabolites that I mentioned earlier that then can have different effects on the body. We tend to see as you get older that actually that microbial diversity can decrease. 
So you can have less uh, different types of species that are then less able to kind of have that um, resilience um, that I mentioned earlier. And that is, tends to be a lot in line with that kind of overall natural progression of, of how our body slightly, don't want to say deteriorates, uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily a word that we want to use, but it's just our natural kind of way of our body kind of developing and perhaps slowing down a little um, as we get kind of older and older. I like that piece around our bodies developing because we, we do want to keep this about positivity. Our bodies are changing and developing all the time. But I guess the purpose of today will be coming at the end of the show to talk about what we can do about, about it and making sure that we maintain a good health status for as long as we possibly can. So perhaps this is a good time to introduce Rebecca into the conversation and, and hear about your journey because you're now, am I allowed to say kind of your age range? I mean, obviously this is oh, time. I'm, people I'm happy to talk about my age. I'm 48. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe I'm 48, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the over, or 40 plenty club, my aunt Betty calls it. We don't I love that. that age. It's 40 plenty. I'll be using that <laughs> for the next 30 years, I think. Me too. <laughs> But you sort of started to look at your diet in your 30s. Can you tell us about the trigger for that? Yeah, I, I've worked in marketing for the past 25 years and I had started um, a new job at Coca-Cola. And I know on a nutrition podcast, that's almost like blasphemy. And that's part of, that's part of my journey. I was working for this amazing organisation. So if you're a marketeer, to work for Coke is like, you know, the holy grail. And I was absolutely loving it. But I was finding that my work life which was a really long commute a lot of travel so I was on a plane or on the Eurostar pretty much every other week and um kind of just that whole like speedy busy full-on kind of a life um started to have an effect on my health um and at the same time I developed adult acne for the second time in my life so I'd had it in my 20s sort of early 20s and I had been prescribed Roaccutane by my dermatologist so for anyone who's listening who's had severe acne Roaccutane is a pretty horrendous experience in terms of the side effects on your body it dries everything up really I mean it's 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 a high dose vitamin A basically but it makes or for me and this is you know many of the side effects for other people it makes your eyes go bloodshot your nose crack and bleed your lips split your tendons ache you have to have a blood test every month because it's quite toxic for the liver. You're not allowed to get pregnant. There's all of these side effects from it. And so having had it in my 20s, um, supposedly Roaccutane will stop you from ever getting acne again. But lo and behold, I just started this kind of fancy pants new job at Coca-Cola. I was 34 and my adult acne came back. So I had to go back and see uh, my dermatologist. And she's like, this is kind of strange. It doesn't usually reoccur if you've had Roaccutane. And at the same time, and this is like the moment that I am forever thankful for, I was um, recommended, um, someone recommended to me um, a nutritional therapist. So having just been prescribed Roaccutane again, um, age 34, with the prospect of going into my new job, standing in front of a room full of people having a nosebleed, because that, that's what happened quite a lot with the kind of drying of all your nasal cavities. Um, thankfully, someone said, go and see this nutritional therapist. And long story short, she helped me to understand that I was allergic to cow's milk. And I had never, never even considered that this could be a thing. Um, and I'd been happily um, having a couple of lattes a day. Um, I really love coffee. 
Um, and I will always ask for extra hot, extra shot. And I kind of never really liked the taste of milk, but I really liked the coffee. And it never twigged to me that I might be sort of just not really liking the taste of milk. It's almost like I didn't know what my gut was trying to tell me. So with her help, I completely, completely changed my diet. I gave up gluten for a really long time and I gave up cow's milk. And lo and behold, um, in addition to Aracutane, went on that for another six months. Um, since that journey of kind of age 34, understanding what worked for me and my body, I'm now 48, don't touch cow's milk at all now. And if I do, spots come out instantly on my face. <laughs> it's just, it was something that I'd never twigged. And actually that, that, the beginning of that journey, age 34, sent me on a whole other journey about understanding my body, but then going on to study nutrition myself. And just, I was amazed by something so simple that thing that my body didn't really like was triggering, triggering all of these reactions. So yeah, it was, um, I'm forever thankful to her for pointing that out to me in the journey that we went on together. And oh, thanks for sharing and being so candid. And like you say, it's about understanding what's right for your body because you can get into a habit of doing things in a routine. And I think this is particularly interesting to me. I think finding when you age, you, you develop certain lifestyle patterns and certain habits which serve you well at parts of your life. But as you age, and like Emily was saying, you get developments and changes and the goalposts move. And because we're in our headspace of doing the same thing over and over again, we don't adapt to those moving goalposts. And you know, it's interesting you talk about milk because in, in my culture, my parents, my parents from West Africa, a lot of people are actually lactose intolerant. And my parents have been drinking milk all through my childhood. And all of a sudden they were finding that they were having problems with it. And something that I've developed as I get older. So you start to have to drop some of the foods you've really loved because your body's changing. And I guess that's just part of accepting that that's who we are. Our bodies aren't static and we need to adapt to them. But by the same token, and Emily mentioned this, it's about making sure that we've got some good diversity in our diet. So if you're taking out one thing, what else can you find to make up that gap um, and not become more restrictive? So that's been a really interesting story. Thanks for sharing that, Rebecca. No worries. So I'm going to come back to you, Emily, and, and let's just flesh out some some more about the changes that people go through. So Rebecca's touched on on menopause and with the, the work that you've done on Zoe, have you seen any issues that people have on menopause and, and gut health? And are you able to share any of that with us? Well, I think uh, we're, we're actually looking particularly at menopause in much, much closer, uh, much more closer lens because it's it's such an area of research that we just don't know that much about yet, which is shocking considering we have 50% of the population being women. Um, I think it's, you know, we're very much, I think we're kind of trying to hopefully stand a bit more on the soapbox at Zoe and say, hey, you know, let's, let's look at this, let's focus on this. Um, so we have had some research come out by some of my associates on menopause, but it hasn't specifically been looking necessarily um, at the gut microbiome we have, uh, but we have like generally uh, understanding of some of the research around this is that the gut microbiome plays a role in regulating our estrogen levels. So when it comes to menopause, for example, you know, perhaps supporting our gut microbiome is actually may, may help us kind of regulate those estrogen levels. Because we know obviously in menopause that, you know, your estrogen levels tend to decrease a little bit um, and as you go and get older. So I think perhaps, you know, there's, there's something there. And, you know, is it that um, we see, you know, talking about phytoestrogens and how those might be able to help uh, with some of the menopausal symptoms? Is it that? Can, can I just inter interrupt you to talk about um, phytoestrogens and just explain yeah. what they are? 
So phytoestrogens are a kind of plant-based, um, so from a plant, and it's got kind of a similar um, type of kind of to an est to actually oestrogen in our body. Um, so it's kind of something that our body can might recognise as being similar to oestrogen, and the microbiome can then use uh, an enzyme to break this down into oestrogen uh, uh, molecules itself. That then these then travel around the body. And I interrupted you when you were talking about protective effects. So if you can go back to that. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so if we can look after uh, our microbiome, it could be just one of those kind of pieces of the puzzle that we can look after to help kind of support us and help us manage um, our symptoms. Um, so, for example, there's evidence around phytoestrogens and hot flushes and reducing hot flushes. Um, and also in terms of, you know, keeping our estrogen levels you know, high as it perhaps means that we might find that, you know, that onset of, of menopause might be slightly later than it would inherently otherwise. So that's some interesting research to look forward to. And I'm also keen to explore what you were talking about earlier about diversity of foods. And I don't know with, with personalised nutrition, how easy it is to say to somebody, actually your diet is diverse enough or it's not diverse. Could you elaborate on that? Because like I said, we are creatures of habit and maybe that's one trick that we are missing. Yeah, no, definitely. We are creatures of habit. And I think, um, you know, in the kind of Western world, we tend to go to the supermarket and pick out, you know, couple of things and it tends to be pretty similar week by week and enough we go. Um, there's been an interesting research around the fact that uh, kind of 12 to 16 year olds actually have greater microbial diversity than adults and the researchers kind of hypothesized that perhaps this was because you know you have a greater propensity to try new things at that age you know whether it's your you know your own choice or your parents probably telling you you know, you must eat uh, whatever's put in front of you on the table. Um, but there's definitely, you know, I think this, we do keep circling back to this, this plant diversity, this dietary diversity element. Um, and this is predominantly based on research um, by the American Gut Project, which was the largest, uh, I think still is one of the largest uh, citizen science projects, um, where they collected uh, multiple stool samples from 10,000 people in the US and the UK. Um, and they found that uh, microbial diversity, so diversity of the different bacterial species, was associated with plant diversity. So the number of different types of plant foods that you have in your diet. So when we talk about plant foods, we talk about um, legumes, nuts, seeds, vegetables, whole grains, uh, and fruit. Um, so it's not just your fruit and veggies. Uh, and these, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense. If you think you're providing your your gut bacteria with lots of different types of foods, then those different bacteria will all have something that they, you know, they have selective substrates that they like to consume. And then those will then all exert different beneficial, um, you know, metabolites that, that come from those different bacterial species that then go and exert different health effects. So that's something really where we can, you know, really... Uh, look after um, and support our gut microbiome is really having that gut diversity and that plant diversity. 
That's brilliant. I think it's it's going to be hard for people to understand how diverse their diet actually is, because from one person to another, I think it is very different. And we're creatures of habit, but we're also very good at overestimating what we're good at and <laughs> underestimating what we're bad at. So you know, I've heard it said by many a doctor when they ask a patient how much units of alcohol they have in a given week, it's always they always have to add on a few because they know that the person's going to underestimate. But if they ask them how much fruit and veg they eat in a given week, that yeah. would it? <laughs> something called the you know it's kind of social diet desirability bias, where you know we typically underreport. Um, you know certain things and, and we probably over as you say over report um, other things that we think are a bit more social desirable um, but I think in terms of personalization just to go back to what Rebecca was saying obviously if you're an intolerant or you have an allergy that's something that is potentially going to give you symptoms is not going to make you feel great because ultimately what is this all about it's about feeling great and having energy um, as your body changes and evolves uh, and how can we best support that um, I think, you know, if we take out the side of intolerances and, and allergies, it's really about having that dietary diversity as much as possible and adding things in rather than taking things away. Um, and I think that's really something that I really try and focus on when I talk on these things. It's, you know, not oh, should we be reducing this or cutting these things out? It's like, how can we add more in? How can we, you know, try a new different vegetable, try a different fruit, have fun with this, what tastes good? Well, thank you very much for that. And going back to Rebecca, so just to get an idea from you, what is it you've, you've ditched and what have you increased if you want to share with us? I love, I love the idea of um, having fun with trying new stuff and the idea of, you know, eating a rainbow of things and finding things that you haven't tried before. Um, takes the pressure off, doesn't it? So what have I, um, what have I ditched? Well, I'm, I'm perimenopausal now. So 48, I'm well into perimenopause. And one of the things I found, uh, one of my sort of main symptoms through perimenopause was um, heart palpitations. So um, I had everything checked out and nothing, you know, nothing to worry about. It's just benign ectopic beats, as they're called, like slightly irregular beats that come on throughout the day. And um, the cardiologist said that I needed to give up caffeine. So having been a dedicated coffee drinker for the whole of my life without milk since the age 34 year old episode I, I i firmly believe it was one of my daily pleasures and that you know i'm pretty healthy the rest of the time i was like, i love a good coffee and when i said to the cardiologist or he asked me how many coffees a day do you have i said oh i've cut down i have uh, one in the morning my breakfast and one straight after my lunch but that's it and he said fully caffeinated i was like mm-hmm he went oh it's gonna have to go i was like oh no not my coffee so um i went cold turkey and for anyone that's had a couple of coffees every day for 20 odd years going cold turkey is not a pleasant experience but i knew that um the only way that i would ever give up coffee was if um someone told me i had to um so three days of horrendous headaches later i was i was over the um, caffeine withdrawal and now i maybe have an odd decaf now and again for the like they'll love the bitter taste of it um but coffee's gone completely. Um, and I've actually now, I love what you said, Emily, about it's, it's really, really, this is all about feeling good in our bodies and having lots of energy. In fact, I probably feel better from having given up caffeine than, than not. So I think it's been a really positive move. And the other thing that um, unsurprisingly he said to me was, um, alcohol's not brilliant for heart palpitations, nor is it brilliant for hot flushes either, right? So it's kind of a, 
it's kind of a win-win if you start to either take alcohol out or reduce alcohol. So now I talk about, um, I love a glass of champagne. I mean, I always thought ca coffee and champagne would be my vices, but now it's the odd glass of champagne. And I talk about high days and holidays or long haul flights. So if someone offers me a glass of champagne on a high day or a holiday, I'm going to have one. But the rest of the time, I kind of have to take it or leave it. And I'm all right with that. Um, and I, f I feel much better as a result. And the palpitations have subsided. And my, I, wasn't, I was not getting loads of hot flushes, but they were starting to kick in. Um, so they're the things I've dropped. And the thing that I've started um, having daily recently, it's massively helped with hot flushes, is that aloe vera juice. So um, I have a, a maybe an egg cup full of it every morning before my breakfast, and that is that, that's really helped. So it's a random one to add to the diversity of um, plant-based foods that I'm not eating, drinking in this instant. Oh, that's interesting. So you've you found a balance of things that give you more energy and are right for you. And again, it goes back to what we were saying about everybody needs to find actually what's right for them because there's no carbon cutout that says this is what will work for everybody in perimenopause or everybody in menopause. And I think it's about moving away from those those strict lists that you get from different fad diets that say everybody needs to do this or everybody needs to do that. It's about working out what's for you. And I think the personalised nutrition approach will become a lot more popular. But also the messages about balance and, and diversity, because like Emily was saying, it's very easy to tell. And I think I'm not going to blame any doctors, but I think it's easy for doctors to tell people to stop doing something than it is to start unless you're a GP where every GP says you need to do more exercise but <laughs> that's almost like a mantra isn't it you need to do more exercise like I'm doing four hours a week as it is but I think it's it's interesting how we approach things and I can start to see a change in how people are, are realizing what works for them and they're not copying what their hairdresser did or copying what their mum did or, you know we're all very very different people and we all have different um different eating experiences and different environments and I know from my own research that our food environment shapes our choices in inverted commas. It's more about our food practices, how we access food and what, what our daily structure is, whether we're at home, whether we're commuting, that all shapes our food experience. And finding what's right for an individual point of view is, is very important. Um, so exercise, actually, we haven't really talked much about that, Emily. When you're looking at, at from a Zoe point of view at people's diets, do you also look at exercise or is that something that's a separate entity? That's something I think we're looking to explore further in the future, but it's not something that we've um, looked at at the moment. We have looked at sleep um, a little bit because obviously we, we do want to consider um, all the different, you know, pillars of health, which is very much, uh, you know, diet, movement, um, you know, de-stressing. Um, you know, trying to and, and sleep to try to really improve all those behaviours. Um, but predominantly our focus at Zoe is very much that diet and giving personalised dietary advice. In terms of sleep, um, what's really interesting is that we found that um, your glycemic response uh, in the mornings, um, if you've had a bad night's sleep, um, was more disrupted uh, and dysregulated. So actually, you know, if you're having a poor night's sleep, and you know you want to you know, wake up inherently we want something that's quite comforting don't we i don't know about you if i have a bad night's sleep i'd much more rather go and have you know a croissant probably a cup of coffee to make me more alert but actually what we see from from that research was really interesting was actually having more of a glucose steady breakfast was probably more likely to give you specifically on those days where you've had you know a bad night's sleep it's more likely to help you feel um you know more energized uh, throughout the day 
and just prevent kind of having these kind of you know overt excessive uh, glucose spikes. Um, so not microbiome necessarily related, but um, could be, you know, we don't know if that maybe there is an element of microbiome in that, but that specific bit of research was, I think, really interesting. Um, and when I say glucose steady breakfast, we're talking about, you know, perhaps having more of a savory breakfast. So, you know, eggs and avocado on rye bread, um, something like that, or just making sure you've got, you know, a fat and a protein source. So perhaps having Greek yogurt together with some kind of you know like fruits and you know berries for example uh, and some nuts and seeds that's some great advice I, mean, I tend to have two breakfasts porridge or eggs and flip between the two so i think it's probably time to mix things up and see how it goes but i found that the one thing that, that i really struggled with during menopause was sleep sometimes i have a good night's sleep but most times i wasn't and i can totally understand the whole i don't want what's in the fridge for breakfast i'm going to go and get a croissant from the local supermarket because that's how you feel when you get up but I'm so pleased to hear that it's not just me <laughs> it's my biology it's it's life in general so that is comforting so I know what I need to do really to break that habit is well not necessarily go to bed early I don't necessarily know why we have bad sleep when we're menopausal but you know you have your routine some days you sleep some days you don't so I'll be following the Zoe results with interest and put my name down on the wait list to become one of the participants as well but um, that, that was really interesting about learning some of the things that are around and, and connected to our gut health and how that can help us. What I'm really interested in talking to just before we close are the things that we can focus on as we age. What do we need to pay attention to and what do we need to be doing differently and look out for? Uh, I'll start with Emily. So, yeah, I think we've got, you know, we're talking about healthy aging and, you know, it's something that all of us, you know, at some point in our lives, they kind of are going to gonna come across and we need to think about. And I think I really, really appreciate that you brought up the fact that actually our environment is a huge factor in our food choices and, and our health, because ultimately, you know, I think there's so much onus on the individual, which is can be incredibly stressful, but there are things that we can feel empowered about. Um, and thinking about our home environment is actually you know, a really good thing is like, how can we fill our cupboards with things that, how can we make things easily accessible to uh, choose choices that are going to help us support our microbiome? So things that we can do is very much that plant diversity. Um, it doesn't, it can be something as simple as, you know, getting the mixed pack of, of vegetables from the frozen, you know, supermarket aisle, you know, having frozen, you know, something that's basically probably not as exciting as you might see if someone's talking about kombucha or uh, anything like that, but actually it's going to give you really great uh, nutrients and, you know, something quick and easy. Spanning all the way to the spectrum of trying maybe a new grain, um, you know, if it's something uh, like quinoa that you haven't had before, or even just, you know, trying a new vegetable that you haven't included. Um, Rebecca mentioned, you know, thinking about the the colors of your diet so the diversity that rainbow effect because we know in each different color of vegetables uh, and fruit that color is coming from uh, phyto you know uh, phytochemicals called uh, polyphenols and these have uh, a kind of they act as prebiotic fibers uh, on the gut microbiome so feeding them um, having that uh, you know making sure that we're keeping that exercise up. So definitely also the resistant exercise is really important for our bone health, um, but also for our microbiome. We see that having kind of good level of physical activity is really good, again, for that microbial diversity. 
And I guess that would, other things to say there would probably be fermented foods. Um, so I did mention kombucha, but actually most of the evidence is around kefir um, at the moment, just in terms of the amount of research that has been done. Uh, but also we're talking about uh, kimchi, sauerkraut, um, those kinds of foods that have been fermented. And actually there's been a recently a research paper that's come out to show that um, six servings of fermented foods a day has been shown to be associated with reduced inflammatory markers um, and kind of increased microbial diversity. Of course, that is a lot, um, but it's just, <laughs> I don't, I definitely don't eat six portions, <laughs> but it just gives an insight that perhaps that's another way of adding, you know, a new vegetable that also is fermented and has some kind of, uh, you know, live bacteria in it that could hopefully be actually supporting your health as long as you enjoy it. You know, all of this is about things that you enjoy um, and, you know, social experiences. And I guess the last thing on that and social experiences is contact with other humans. You know, we know from hugging other people, kissing other people, that we have this amazing share of microbes, you know, even shaking someone's hand. Um, so that social contact, contact is, is hugely important. I like that you ended on that. So we need to be choosy about who we hug and who we shake hands with because we want the best microbiome and the best microbe transfer between the two, don't we? And the other thing I picked up was what you said about sauerkraut. So back in the 90s, I did a placement in Germany. And it fascinated me that the teenagers at lunchtime, instead of going to I guess their equivalent, probably their equivalent of like a Greg's, you know, they go and get chips with sauerkraut on. I was thinking, genius, potatoes and fermented foods. Like, who knew that was even a thing? And whilst I'm not necessarily recommending that's what people go out and do, it's really to illustrate the point that you don't have to make expensive lifestyle choices. They can be as simple as just putting two plain old things together that um, adds the diet. So thank you for sharing that with us. And Rebecca, have you been inspired by anything that you've heard from Emily? Is there anything you're fancy thinking, oh, I must change that now? Oh, the, I, love, I just love the idea of um, the rainbow and getting as much um, colour in as possible. And I have this, I think the other thing that's really important when we're trying to make good food choices is that we eat with our eyes as much as we eat with, you know, the rest of our body. So the idea that beautiful, colourful, crunchy things on our plate is a feast for our eyes as well as for our body. I, I love that notion. So um, just the idea of filling my plate with lots of colour is a good thing. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna, I'm definitely, definitely going to keep doing that. Oh, that's brilliant news, especially for the fresh produce fans that uh, <laughs> we have on this show. Having a fresh produce background, but that's not to just frozen at all. I think frozen vegetables and fruit, especially now that we're going into a time of you know cost constraints and issues incredibly important to get those cans of peas, to get that, that frozen bag of smoothie veg in the freezer and use those and, and really try and, and be different with our food choices and, and look at things from a, a different point of view and be a bit more inclusive, like Emily was saying about adding things into the diet that we probably haven't thought of before. So as we age, it's a time to expand and be more positive about life, isn't it? So I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me on today's podcast and helping us understand our, our gut health a bit more and ways that which we can help improve things as we age. And for the listeners, thank you very much for joining us. Do subscribe and uh, give us comments and feedback. I'd love to have you at the next episode, which um, I can't remember what I'm having next, but I will definitely, if you subscribe, make sure you, you get pinged about it. So thank you very much, everybody, and see you on the next episode. 
thank you to you, the listeners, for joining us today for today's episode of Gut Health and Healthy Aging. I hope you've got some great take-home points and things that you've learned that you can implement in your own lives as well. Do subscribe to the podcast, click, share, like, whatever it is you want to do, and also give us feedback. And by subscribing, you'll be notified of when the next episode lands on the podcast platforms. Thank you again. Take care. And in the meantime, stay well. Stay well.